All right, we are resuming our series on Hebrews 11, and we will be looking at verse 23 to the end after we ask the Lord to encourage us with his blessing. Our Father, we stand with this great list of those who out of the history of redemption has grasped the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We rejoice that together with them, we too have seen the pioneer and perfecter of our pilgrim faith. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the eschatological pilgrim and the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And we are delighted that in this study we have been able to find our life hidden with him in you and by your spirit more deeply and richly understand how you have revealed yourself in the former days and in these last days. And so lift up our faith into those eschatological possessions that have belonged to all believers in every age since the foundation of the world because of your dear Son, the Savior of all from the foundation of the world. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The gap between verse 22 and verse 23 of Hebrews 11 extends to four centuries. 400 years of silence. 400 years of mute silence. And coterminously, 400 years of bondage. Bitter bondage. Bondage and silence about to be broken by a baby's cry. An infant baby cries from his bed and the silence is broken. Four centuries of silence are broken by a slave child's cry. The 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, mute and silent, about to be awakened by the voice of a child, the voice of a child destined to set his people free. There is yet one more gap one more era of silence, one more era of mute silence, 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Four centuries of occupation and subjugation and violation in the midst of stony silence. 
But that silence and oppression is about to be broken by a baby's cry. An infant child cries from his bed and the muted age is awakened. Four centuries of silence are broken by a peasant child's cry. The 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew, mute and silent, about to be awakened by the voice of a child, destined to save his people from their sins. Our author begins with the birth of that liberator whose infant cries awakened the longing heart of a Pharaoh's daughter, a daughter of Pharaoh, whom God used to give his deliverer wisdom and knowledge and favor with man and God. The voice of Moses sounded from his infant bed and from his Hebrew soul and from his burning bush commission. Another voice broke the mute silence of 400 years. Let my people go. That voice which shattered the silence out of a burned but not consumed bush broke the mute centuries and made a wilderness shepherd his voice, his spokesman, his miracle-credentialed messenger. And now, with pilgrim staff in hand, this Moses, this one drawn from the waters, this one drawn to the bush which burned without burning up, this elect one, chosen of the Lord, now this one's voice shatters the silence. Let my people go. And on the nether side of that other four-century silence, the voice of angels and archangels, the choral voice of the whole heavenly host, the voices which shattered the silence of a night of darkness, dark night of the soul. And a daughter of Judah draws a child from a manger, a child whom she and her husband will train in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. This Son's voice will sound from infant bed, from Temple Mount, from Jordan's shore, and echoed back will be the voice shattering four centuries of silence 
This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. This elect and chosen of the Lord. Now this God incarnate voice. Miracle credentialed voice. This one brings fire upon the earth. Now this one's voice shatters the silence. I am come that they may have life, abundant life. I am come that they may have everlasting life. The reproach of Christ falls upon Moses. Moses bears the mark of the Lord Jesus, even as Jesus comes as the prophet like unto Moses, the prophet more than Moses. Moses, the prophet of God, Jesus, very God. The protological Moses is born under threat of a pagan tyrant determined to kill all the male babies of Israel. The eschatological Moses is born under threat of a pagan tyrant determined to kill all the male babies of Bethlehem. The protological Moses is commissioned by fiery theophany and credentialed with miraculous signs and wonders. The eschatological Moses is commissioned by dove-like theophany and credentialed with miraculous signs and wonders. The protological Moses passes through the waters. His people baptized unto Moses in the sea. The eschatological Moses passes through the waters. His people baptized unto his death and resurrection. Those protological and eschatological waters. Waters which divide. Divide the old from the new. The old era of Egyptian slavery from the new era of Mosaic liberty. And encore, encore the waters which divide. Divide the era of Old Testament expectation from the era of New Testament realization. Moses passes through the waters. The old is is past The new is before. Jesus passes through the waters. The old era is past. The new age of the gospel is before. That water ordeal. That water ordeal 
is the line which divides bondage and freedom, death and life. The kingdoms and rulers of this world and the kingdom and ruler of heaven. Beyond the baptismal waters is the land in between. The land between salvation and consummation. It is the wilderness land of the sojourner, the pilgrim, the stranger and alien whose back is to slavery and whose face is set towards Beulah land. The protological Moses travels this land for 40 years. The eschatological Moses travels this land for 40 days and 40 nights. And in this pilgrim land, there is a mountain. And upon that mountain, the protological Moses sits with representatives of the old Israel, twelve tribes of the old Israel. The protological Moses on the protological mountain with the twelve-man protological Israel to receive the law of the God of heaven. There is yet one more mountain in this pilgrim land. And upon that mountain, the eschatological Moses sits with the representatives of the new Israel. The twelve-man disciple, new Israel of God. The eschatological Moses on the eschatological mountain with the twelve-man eschatological Israel to receive the law of the eschatological kingdom of heaven. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And all of this, all of this accomplished through the blood of a lamb, a Passover lamb, a lamb whose blood sprinkled on the lintel and doorpost speaks life, not death, speaks death, pass over, life abides under. A lamb's blood and the Israel of God goes free. A protological Passover lamb portends an eschatological Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed also for us. An eschatological lamb whose blood sprinkled on the lintel and doorpost of the soul speaks life, not death. Speaks death, pass over, life abides under. A once and for all lamb's blood and the eschatological Israel of God 
those free. Moses rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, within this narrative that the writer reviews of the career of Moses, you will notice that there is a pattern to the section. This entire section, of course, is redemptive historically oriented. And so he asked the question, how far does he extend his review of the life of Moses? He begins at verse 23, as I've already indicated. But how far does he discuss or review the life of Moses in the succeeding verses. What do you say? How far does he go? Does he go to verse 25? Does he go to verse 29? Robert is suggesting that he extends his review of the career of Moses to verse 29. Any other suggestion? Looks like, Robert, you have unanimous consent. Save that it doesn't really match. Why? Well, you'll notice how he arranges and structures this section. Observe that in verse 23, he uses the phrase by faith and follows it by the name of Moses. He duplicates that in the very next verse, verse 24. He then inaugurates or at least uses two verb forms in the succeeding uh, verses, verses 25 and 26, and does not use the phrase by faith, nor does he use a verb which specifies the subject Moses. That is, it is not in the verb. In verse 27, he uses the phrase by faith, which he had also used in verse 23 and 24, but he does not use the name Moses following that phrase. He uses a Greek verb which has the third person personal masculine pronoun in it, by faith, he which he also duplicates in verse 28, by faith he. And then he breaks the pattern with the pronoun they. And what did he end verse 28 with? The pronoun them. He switches from the third person personal pronoun to the third person plural pronoun. And in fact, he concatenates it. He hooks it together. He hooks the end of verse 28 to the beginning of verse 29 with the third person plural pronoun, a hook pattern, which means he's starting something different in verse 29. In other words, because of the symmetry of the section, 
By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. Matching by faith, he. By faith, he. He has bracketed his discussion and review of the career of Moses. He is not talking about Moses per se in verse 29. He is talking about the children of Israel. It is true that Moses led them, but it is not Moses' career. Moses' career ends for our writer with the Passover. With Israel in Egypt about to exodus, the land of slavery. Now, I passed over verses 25 and 26. In verse 24, he reviews the childhood of Moses. In verse 25, he reviews the, shall we say, the young adolescence and early adulthood of Moses, where he breaks with Egypt and with Pharaoh. In verse 27, he talks about Moses leaving Egypt. And then in verse 28, he talks about Moses keeping the Passover. Leaving Egypt in verse 27. What event is he referring to? What do you think, Ben? Well, I never thought of it. Perhaps of his leaving for Midian when he had killed the... uh, you would naturally think of what? <clears throat> of the Exodus, yes. <clears throat> but notice that he places the Passover next in the sequence. He's been moving sequentially through Moses' historical career, from childhood to young adulthood to he leaves Egypt and Passover, which would mean that if it's the Exodus in verse 25, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in verse 27, then he's put things out of sequence, out of chronological sequence. So I do agree with Ben that he's referring in verse 27 to Moses' running from Egypt after slaying the Hebrew taskmaster, burying him in the sand and fleeing to the uh, country of Midian where he became a shepherd for 40 years. The only possible hitch in that suggestion is the phrase, he did not fear the wrath of the king. In Exodus 2, verse 14, when Moses does kill the Egyptian uh, overseer and buries him in the sand, the text says that he feared. It doesn't say that he feared the king, but it says that he feared. And the same Greek word is used in here in Hebrews 11:27, as is used in the Septuagint of Exodus 2:14, that would be the only possible difficulty uh, for the suggestion that 27 is talking about Moses uh, fleeing to the land of Midian. All right. Now, there's one other thing, or a couple other things to notice here uh, with respect to the structure. <clears throat> if we're persuaded that Moses is done in verse 28, and now we're talking about Israel in verse 29 and the Exodus. Then verse 30 brings us where? Or to what historical period? Go ahead, Robert. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Uh... Drag out your Negro spirituals, Robert. I know you love music. 
Joshua. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Joshua picked the battle up. Jericho. Yeah. All right. And the walls came tumbling down, 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 down. All right. Now he goes from crossing the Red Sea to Jericho, and the era of the conquest. Very good. Conquest and settlement of Canaan. What's he skip? Loretta, what he skip? Okay, Robert. Forty years in the wilderness. He skipped the wilderness period. Why did he do that? He forgot himself. He decided it wasn't important. He glosses over. He completely leaves out the wilderness sojourn, doesn't he? Doesn't say anything about Mount Sinai. Doesn't say anything about the man in the wilderness. Why does he do that? Pardon? They didn't believe. No. Why does he skip the wilderness soldier? Didn't have faith. Uh, I think that's a synonym for <laughs> they didn't believe. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. He's already talked about it, hasn't he? He's already given us two chapters on the wilderness generation. Chapters three and four of this epistle. <clears throat> In other words, <clears throat> he's really worked over the wilderness paradigm. Not only in chapter 3 and 4, but according to my interpretation of the difficult part of chapter 6, he's already gone back to the motif, and once again, according to my interpretation of chapter 10, he's returned to it. So in other words, he has, shall we say, used up the wilderness motif. And he skips it, in this instance, because he's moving from the mighty act of God in opening the Red Sea to the next mighty act of God, which is behind the crossing of the Jordan and the collapse of the walls of Jericho. All right, now, skipping down to verse 32. What do you notice about the 32nd verse? Or do you notice anything about the 32nd verse that kind of catches your eye or puzzles your brow? Furrows your brow, <coughs> bewilders your brain, challenges your gray matter. Well, let's take the last two names. Does that give you a clue? Do you see any problem with the last two names? Mm. Ben says they're out of order. What do you mean they're out of order, Ben? Samuel became before David. Samuel is first. What about Barak and Gideon? They're out of order. What about Jephthah and Samson? They're out of order. Why does our writer put everything out of order? And how, what kind of out of order does he do here? Ben, you still have the floor. He swaps them. He swaps them. I like that. <laughs> he puts he puts the successor 
after the predecessor, before the predecessor, doesn't he? So he's reversing them because Gideon is, Barak is before Gideon in the history of the book of Judges. Jephthah is before Samson in the book of Judges. Samuel is before David in the book of 1 Samuel. And who follows Samuel? The prophets. Why does he put Samuel last? Because. First of the prophets. Because Samuel is a prophet. He is called a prophet several times in 1 Samuel. Yes. Samuel stands alongside of the prophet, so it's easy to understand why he put Samuel last. In other words, he wants to back him up against the prophets, whom he's going to go on to describe in the subsequent verses. But why he reverses the other four judges, I have not a clue. And I have thought about this. Over the last couple of weeks, I've thought a good deal about this. But I can't force it into any little grid that makes any sense to my pea brain. So we will leave it to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who put it there. And chalk it up to one more question to place before the throne of omniscience when we get there. Pete? Sure you thought of it, but is it possible that uh, he did it this way to put the emphasis upon God and what God does, and it's not just a succession of order, but that God works? Well, I think that God is working in all four cases. In fact, God is working in all six cases. But I'm not sure why he prioritizes or reverses. I mean, God's theophonic presence in fact, his majestic theophonic presence, which is revered and reviewed by Barak and Deborah in that great song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. I mean, there's more poetry in that song and more theology in that song than there is in the rest of the book of Judges, except insofar as you extract it. So in terms of if we're going to emphasize God's doing something at the outset. Why don't we begin with the one which has the most majestic display of it, poetically speaking, namely Judges 4 and 5, Barak first instead of Gideon. I thought, go ahead, Ben. Why, why would he not do it perhaps to match up his reason for uh, reversing Samuel and the prophets to put them together to keep that, to keep that whole... Uh, well, he doesn't revert. He, he reverses David and Samuel to put Samuel at the beginning of the prophets. But all right, well, working backwards, then what, what is the principle of reversing Gideon and Barak then? Just to match it up, literally, literally. Because he's reversing at the end, he's going to reverse at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> you're intriguing me, but you're not persuading me. One thing I had wrestled with was whether or not he was dealing with those who had exercised their power under God's charismatic spirit with respect to particular kinds of enemies. And it's conceivable that Gideon and Barak are dealing with enemies inside Israel. 
whereas Samson and Jephthah are dealing with enemies outside Israel. And David is uniquely dealing with enemies both inside and outside Israel. But even that is uh, perhaps a reach. Mary, you had something you wanted to suggest? I don't know if there's anything to it or not. Is it possible that the first of each pair is in some way part of a type of Christ, more so than the second of the pair? I don't think so. Uh, Let me shoot my wad for the rest of this uh, evening and uh, see if you uh, are not persuaded of a Christological thrust in all of them. All right, so there is an issue there that uh, does cause us to scratch our heads, and as I say, I, I don't have a solution, and I'm not, uh, I'm not discouraging the suggestions that you've made. It's certainly worth uh, contemplating, but uh, to date or so far, thus far thou hast not persuaded me. And I will talk to you at break. This brings us to Rahab, verse 31. We come now to the scarlet woman of Hebrews 11, to the red light district harlot who lives in her house, her joy house on the walls of Jericho. We come now to the whore of Jericho, this practicing prostitute who receives the spies of Israel, receives the spies of the Lord into her house, her red light district house, receives God's servants and does not proposition them, does not service them, does not prostitute herself before them. Rahab, the harlot, at the visit of God's servants is out of character. This out of character whore does not ply her trade, does not seduce, induce, Reduce these visitors, does not make them objects, toys, customers, johns. No, Rahab, out of character, Rahab serves these men as she had never served men before. Rahab saves these men, hides these men, covers for these men, sends these men's pursuers on a wild goose chase to preserve these men alive. Rahab, not in whorish Character Rahab acts the role of a chaste virgin. Denies herself and her long habit of seducing, prostituting. Rahab denies herself and does not exploit, does not use, but preserves and protects these strangers, these sojourners. These pilgrims come to her house in Jericho, her house on the wall of Jericho, her
her once upon a time red light district house in Jericho. The color red will mark her house, but it will not be the red color of whorish fornication. It will be the scarlet thread of redemption. A red cord will hang from the window of Rahab's house, Rahab's house upon the wall of Jericho, and under the sign of that scarlet cord, Rahab and all her house will experience exodus. Exodus for Rahab and all under the sign of the scarlet thread. Exodus from death. Exodus from destruction. Exodus from the slash of the sword. From the harem of destruction. A red cord hangs upon the house of Rahab and she, yes, she goes free. Free. Free at last. Death passes over her and her house. Once more, at the sign of the red mark upon the house, once more, 40 years beyond Passover, once more, Exodus for a daughter of God. A once upon a time harlot daughter of God, a now no longer harlot, no more whore, never again prostitute, now daughter of God. Mother of Boaz, mother of David, mother of Jesus Christ. Rahab, harlot, Rahab, redeemed harlot, Rahab, mother of the Son of God. What wondrous grace is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous grace is this, O my soul. That's the song of Rahab. Under the sign of the scarlet cord, the transition is complete. The transformation is complete. The old Rahab whore of Jericho is newborn. Newborn Rahab whore no more. Rahab the mother of great David's greater son. For this Rahab, this once upon a time whore prostitute, this Rahab has believed. Yes, Rahab has believed. And Rahab has confessed. Rahab has believed and confessed 
that the almighty God of heaven and earth, who dried up the Red Sea, who marched with you, spies, through the wilderness in destruction of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, this mighty God of your sojourn has given this land, this Jericho land, this Canaan land, your almighty God before whom I now bow myself, I prostrate myself to serve him, worship him, beg him to save me, spare me, redeem me, deliver me from myself, from my sin, my whorish sin, to deliver me and make me a pilgrim like you, make me a sojourner like you, make me an exile from Jericho, but at the same time make me a resident of the promised land. See, says Rahab, I place myself by faith under the scarlet cord, under the blood-like sign which marks my house not as a house of sin, but marks my house as a house of salvation, a house of faith, of like pilgrim identity with you and your people, the God of your exodus and mine. The God of the wilderness pilgrimage and mine. The God of your crossing over Jordan and my God. The God of the conquest of this pagan, this idolatrous, this whorish land of which I was once a part. But grace came. His word came to my harlot heart, and his grace turned my heart from fornication to faith, from prostitution of men to possession of heaven, from this world to the world to come. I, Rahab, Once upon a time, harlot, now see through a glass darkly, yet by faith, I see the son of my salvation. I see by faith my long-expected child and redeemer, whose red blood, whose red blood will be the eschatological sign of my eternal salvation. I see by faith. I see, says Rahab, the substance of things hoped for, Christ Jesus, my child, and the evidence of things not seen, an everlasting city, an everlasting city never to be destroyed and collapsed like the walls of Jericho. Rahab rejoiced to see Christ's day, And she saw it and was glad. And she has entered not only upon the role of the believers of Hebrews 11, but she has entered upon the genealogical role of a son of God in Matthew chapter 1.
She is a protological Gentile. A protological Gentile grafted onto the trunk of the protological Israel of God. And as such, she portends the harlots and publicans with whom Jesus himself was wont to associate because he had come to seek and to save the lost. For he is the eschatological Jew who grafts the Gentiles into himself as the seed of Rahab. Now Gideon is next, verse 32. Gideon, whose many become few, whose few become victorious over Midian. Gideon, whose protological sword of the Lord breaks the rod of the oppressor. Gideon, who grasps every cloak rolled in blood and every boot of the booted warrior. Gideon, at the Battle of Midian, portends one even less than his few. This one, not many, This one, not even few. This one, only one. One solitary child. One solitary Christmas child. This one, a son given unto us, this one, a prince of peace, sent unto us. This one, with the sword of the Lord. This one, with an eschatological sword of the Lord. And upon that sword, Written, Shalom Olam, peace forever. From this child, from this son, from this less than many, less than few, from this only child who is mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Gideon rejoiced to see Christ's day. And Isaiah 9 tells you 
that he saw it and was glad. For you see, the whole context of that prophecy that a child will be given unto us is out of the background of the battle of Midian. Protological sword of the Lord anticipates the eschatological sword of the Lord. Barak. Barak, Deborah's general. In Judges 5, Barak with Deborah sings a song. Barak, the general, sings a song with the prophetess, this mother in Israel, sings a song of triumph, sings a song of the Magnalia Dei, the mighty acts of God. As the mighty God of Israel marched across the fields of Edom and the earth quaked at his presence, The earth shook and the heavens dripped. The clouds dropped water. Water dropped in torrents. Upon the mountains, the mountains of Tabor became a flood. And Kishon overflowed to wash away Sisera's troops. To mire Sisera's chariots in the mud. Their iron-wheeled chariots immobilized in the quagmire. And Barak, commander of the host of the Lord, Barak struck the mired and quagmired oppressor with the sword of the Lord. The key to the defeat of Sisera is the flood that Mires his chariots, his iron-wheeled chariots, iron that Israel did not have. His iron-wheeled chariots become the albatross around Sisera's neck and his army is struck down in the quagmire in the field because they simply cannot move. Jabin, king of Canaan, Commander-in-chief of Sisera, Jabin discomfited near the waters of Megiddo, waters matching waters. Only Sisera escaped. Sisera alone escaped. Sisera escaped to the tent of a woman, another mother in Israel. And that mother, Jael, slew Sisera. Jael, Deborah-like, delivered Israel from the hand of the oppressor. Jael, most blessed of women in the tent, 
Deborah, most blessed of women under the palm tree. Barak, most blessed of men on the field of battle. But most blessed of all be the Lord God of Israel. Bless the Lord, Judges 5, the song sings. Bless the Lord, sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Again I sing, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord who sweeps away his enemies with a torrent of floodwaters. Bless the Lord who brings the mighty down to destruction, trapping them by their own technology. Bless the Lord who exalts his chosen instrument, Deborah and Barak and Jael, who humbles the foe unto death, Jabin and Sisera and the host of the Canaanites. Let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. Judges 5.31 But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. Let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. The enemies of the Lord brought low like the torrents of Kaishan. The lovers of the Lord brought high like the sun rising in its might. The lovers of the Lord God, deliverer of his people, the Lord God lifting up his people like the rising of the sun in the heavens, lifting up his people like the exaltation of his son, the son of God, the Lord, whose face is like the rising of the sun in its might. Revelation 1, 16. Exactly the same phrase in Greek. Exactly alike. The face of the rising sun, S-O-N, hovers in benediction over the valley of the Kaishan, beams upon Barak and Deborah and Jael and all the protological mothers and fathers in Israel, beams his benediction, his double blessing upon them, even as he sweeps away his enemies in the valley of decision sweeps away all his enemies in the valley of the shadow of death and rises. This sun rises with healing on his wings, rises like the sun in its might, rises the sun of the God of Israel. Eschatological elder brother of all the sons and daughters of the Israel of God of the end of the age. Barak rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. The protological captain of God's host who sings a song of victory with the mothers of Israel, Barak, together with them, a lover of the Lord like the rising sun in its might.
And that eschatological captain of God's host, he sings a song of eschatological victory with all the mothers of the eschatological Israel. Christ Jesus, together with them, the once and for all lover of the Lord, his face, an eschatological benediction, shining like the sun, rising in its might upon the pilgrims of the end of the age. After a break, we'll come back to Samson. If you have any questions or comments for what we have covered to this point. Then stretch your legs and get your refreshments. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. With this clever riddle, Samson inaugurates his wedding feast with the unnamed Philistine woman of Timnah. How suggestive is this riddle? For in a real sense, this rhyme is an interpretation of the man. Samson himself is a riddle. Raised a Nazarite, set apart as God's own from his mother's womb, Samson is in fact a weakling, a notorious, tragic weakling. He tears a lion with his bare hands, smites the Philistines' hip and thigh with no more than a donkey's jawbone, picks up the front gates of the city of Gaza, picks up the gates of the city of Gaza and deposits them opposite Mount Hebron. Hebron, mind you, mind you, Mount Hebron, 36 miles away from Gaza, an ascent from sea level to 3,200 feet above the Mediterranean. And by conservative estimates, the gates of the city of Gaza weighed two and a half tons. 5,000 pounds carried 36 miles climbing 3,200 feet above sea level. Yet this reservoir of physical strength is a 90-pound weakling as he sleeps on Delilah's knees. Samson, charismatic deliverer, appointed to emancipate Israel from Philistine tyranny and oppression, Samson dallies with the gift of God as he dallies with Delilah. Samson, more likely a candidate for arrest and censure by the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals than a champion of Israel. You remember the story in Judges 15, how he tied the tails of 300 foxes together in pairs, put a torch between the tails, lit the torch, and sent the foxes running through the Philistine grain fields. Peter would have had a field day with him. 
Samson, designated to live as a temple of the Holy Spirit, Samson dies at his own hand. Samson, some of whose exploits are downright embarrassing to the church. Samson finds a niche in the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11. Samson, who by faith shut the mouths of lions, from weakness was made strong, put foreign armies to flight, experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, having gained approval through his faith. The riddle of Samson is the enigma of a glorious birth and destiny matched by a dubious and often ignominious career. Oh, what he could have been. Alas, what he became. Samson has been a riddle to interpreters and commentators of the Old Testament since the early church fathers. They have increased the riddle of this mighty man of the tribe of Dan by allegorizing him, moralizing him, topologizing him. Since the 18th century, Samson has been dismissed. He's been dismissed by the liberals as a mythical hero, a Jewish titan, a kosher Hercules, if you will. Perhaps the most gifted literary mind in the history of the church to wrestle with Samson is the English poet John Milton. In his epic drama entitled Samson Agonistes, Milton recreates the life of Samson by means of a dialogue. This dialogue is a psychological and spiritual drama, hence Milton's title, Samson Agonistes, Samson the Wrestler, whose chief opponent is himself. Milton takes us inside, inside the mind and heart of the blind Samson, where restless thoughts, like a deadly swarm of hornets, present times past what once I was and what am now. The Milton who brilliantly crafts the Samson Agonistes is the same Milton who penned the magnificent description of the devil plummeting from heaven to hell in paradise lost. Him, the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. Who durst defy the omnipotent to arms? And what of Milton's own agony, his own blindness, out of which he dictated his most famous sonnet. When I consider how my light is spent, and doth God exact day labor light denied, they also serve who only stand and wait. Lovely poignant lines from a blind poet. So in Samson, Milton found a kindred soul. 
Students of English literature have not missed the autobiographical similarities in Milton's Samson. Samson was blind, so was Milton. Samson was the object of humiliating defeat, so was Milton humiliated with the collapse of the English Puritan Revolution in 1660. Samson is a witness to Philistine revelry. The Philistines in England, after the restoration of King Charles II, were the divine right monarchists and the Episcopalian bishops. The similarities between the biblical Samson and the Puritan Milton are intriguing. But the riddle of John Milton is not my concern. It is the dramatic contrast in Samson which Milton so brilliantly draws out so as to shed light on the biblical text. And the biblical text is my concern. And if Milton can help me see it, then I will read Milton. Milton's drama is set in the prison house of Gaza, Judges 16, verses 21 and following. It is the day before Samson's death. Samson's story is drawn out through the dialogue with his visitors, his father Manoah, Delilah, whom Milton gratuitously makes Samson's wife, and Harapha, a Philistine Goliath before his time, whom Milton adds to the story as a foil of brute strength. Samson's opening speech is a summary of his own contradictory state. Why was my breeding ordered and prescribed as of a person separate to God, designed for great exploits, if I must die betrayed, captive, and both my eyes put out, made of my enemies the scorn and gaze to grind in brazen fetters? Ask for this great deliverer now and find him eyeless, In Gaza, at the mill with slaves, himself in bonds under Philistine yoke. What irony, what brilliant, powerful, poetic irony. Great, mighty, valiant Titan is blind, impotent, pathetic. He who made the Philistines slaves to Israel is tied to a millstone, himself a slave, bound in Philistine yoke. However, the depth of Samson's humiliation is not yet. A feast to Dagon is proclaimed. The Philistines gather to praise their blind, deaf, and dumb God, Dagon, to celebrate the deliverance of Samson into their hands. Mighty Dagon, they shout, has delivered this weakling, this blind weakling, into our hands. And so they drag Samson out to make sport of him. Sightless Samson, the spectacle. The once mighty champion of Israel must be led by the hand 
to rest on the supporting pillars. But every covenant child knows what blind Samson did once he got his hands on those pillars. Samson turned those sightless eyes to heaven, away from himself, away from his weakness, away from his humiliation. Samson turned his countenance to the all-seeing God and prayed. Prayed with sighs and groans, prayed with all his heart, prayed for God to vindicate him. And having cried out to God with a loud voice, he laid his hands upon those pillars. He stretched out his arms upon those pillars. He bowed himself with strength upon those pillars, strength which he had never before sensed in his life. And Samson pushed and pressed with all his might so that those two pillars heaved and buckled and down came those pillars, down came the temple of Dagon, down came the lords and ladies of the Philistines, down came all in death and destruction. Here is the solution to the riddle of Samson. The end of the Samson saga is the beginning. Milton puts it perfectly. Samson hath quit himself like Samson. At the end, Samson is Samson. Finally, like the Samson he was meant to be. Finally, a Samson whose strength is in the Lord. Finally, a Samson who out of humiliation is made strong by almighty grace. The rubble of a pagan temple testifies that Samson is a riddle no more. From that broken carcass flows a sweetness richer than the honeycomb. For in the end, Samson finds union with God. The Lord God, whom he had been dedicated to serve, does not leave him nor forsake him. By faith, Samson, in the end, from weakness was made strong. It is the end of the Samson saga which reveals the riches of God's grace. For in the dying Samson, God reveals himself as the vindicator of the man of faith. The just by faith shall live. Samson believed God at last and Samson lives, lives coram deo, before the face of God. In the end is the beginning. In the dying Samson, God shows himself the destroyer of his enemies. Would Dagon be praised with Samson in chains? Samson unchained delivers the capital blow to Dagon and his seed.
Would a temple of Dagon be raised up? In the destruction of the temple of Dagon, a greater temple is revealed, the temple of the Lord, which is in the heart of his servant. In the end, God dwells within the heart of Samson, and God graciously makes that heart his very own temple dwelling place. Samson finds God his Emmanuel at last, God with him. Would the Philistines vaunt their power over God's servant in mock humiliation and scorn? Samson, through the indwelling power of God, pulls down the dwelling of the principalities and powers of that present evil age. The drama of the age of Samson is that the end of his life is the reversal of his whole ignominious career. The end of the life of Samson is nothing less than a resurrection. A resurrection of faith, vindication, and victory. This is no suicide. This is no suicide. The great Christian commentators down to the ages are right. Samson's death is a holy war. Like the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, Samson is the Lord's instrument of harem, devoting the Philistines to destruction. His own life is forfeit in that battle, just as every soldier renders his life potentially forfeit in the face of war. Milton expresses it, come Come, no time for lamentation now. Samson hath quit himself like Samson, and heroically hath finished a life heroic on his enemies, fully revenged. Nothing is here for tears, nothing to wail or knock the breast, no weakness, no contempt, dispraise or blame, nothing but well and fair, and what may quiet us in a death so noble. And yet, the noble end of Samson directs our eyes to yet another end. The new beginning which is made in Samson's resurrection points the eye of faith to a greater resurrection in the end of the age. Samson's birth was announced by an angelic messenger. So was the birth of Samson's Lord. Samson's growth and development was blessed by God. So was the growth of Samson's Lord. Samson was moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. So was Samson's Lord. Samson entered the stronghold of the enemy to become a spectacle of mockery and humiliation. So did Samson's Lord. Still, Samson is not just a prototypical Christ figure. He is a testimony to the reality that the end is more glorious than the beginning. The end eschatologically and the end chronologically. The verdict of scripture with respect to Samson is not a preachy indictment of his depravity. 
those weaknesses are obvious enough without exposition. The verdict of Scripture with respect to Samson is the testimony that he possessed the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, in Samson's case, vindication and victory. The evidence of things not seen, in Samson's case, the life of God's servant out of his death in the arena of his enemies. The summary verdict of Hebrews 11 with respect to Samson is that he possessed by faith, by faith, Samson possessed. And the faith of Samson possessed a particular aspect of trust. Not faith forensically conceived as in justifying faith, not faith mystically conceived as in sanctifying faith, but faith in its eschatological aspect. Faith as a vehicle of the world not seen unleashed in a human heart. By faith, Samson saw. Yes, blind Samson saw. By faith, Samson saw the end from the beginning. Samson, by faith, saw the fulfillment of the promises of the covenant of grace. By faith, Samson saw his life united with the life of one who would deliver without being a sinner. One who would redeem without failure. One who would lead captivity captive. In the end, by faith, Samson saw his life hidden in God. And that is why his prayer of faith was the vehicle for unleashing supernatural power upon the principalities and powers of his evil age. So in Samson, we upon whom the end of the ages has come, we behold the end from the beginning and the beginning in the end. A greater than Samson has pulled down the synagogue of Satan, despoiling principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. A greater than Samson has been crucified in weakness, raised again in power. A greater than Samson has built the true temple dwelling of God on the rubble of idol shrines, for he is the temple. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Here is where your faith and my faith must find their end. With Samson at last, in all of our foolishness, all of our sinfulness, all of our arrogance, cleverness, all of our pride, not the blind eye, but the inner eye of Samson's faith, the faith which looks steadfastly unto Jesus, who was delivered up unto death, who was raised up unto life, who redeems life out of the pit, even out of the prison pit in Gaza. By faith, Samson saw Christ's day, and he rejoiced and was glad. By faith, he possessed a dying and rising Christ.
by faith he was conformed to that death and resurrection in his very own death and resurrection. By faith, Samson was united by grace to death and resurrection in Christ Jesus, who is himself the eschatological Samson. Remember me, Judges 16.28. Remember me, Samson cries, the cry, the very same cry in Greek of the thief on the cross. Remember me. Remember me, O Lord. And now Jephthah. Jephthah, whose faith possessed the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The narrative of Jephthah's life spans Judges 11 and 12, but it is the account in chapter 11 which stirs the controversy. The narrative parameters are established by the inclusio which frames that 11th chapter of Judges. Jephthah the Gileadite in verse 1 and Jephthah the Gileadite in verse 40. Included between these storyboard bookends is a narrative of rejection and separation, a narrative of reconsideration and desperation, a narrative of proclamation and spirit possession, a narrative of obligation and dedication. (coughs) Jephthah's story begins with his father. Jephthah's story ends with him as father. Jephthah's story in between beginning and end is the narrative of his union with the Lord and the Lord's Holy Spirit endowed deliverance. The Holy Spirit endowed deliverance of the people of God from the oppression of the sons of Ammon. Jephthah is the son of a harlot product of a union between Gilead, his father, and a prostitute. He is marked from birth with the stigma of illegitimacy. And with that stigma hanging over his head, Jephthah is driven from his home by his brothers, separated from his family, and removed to a place outside the boundary of Israel. And in that other place, in that place set apart, Jephthah is set apart by God the Spirit. Set apart with companions of his own removal. Set apart to prepare himself for the service of the Lord. Jephthah, the servant of the Lord, removed into a far country and separated to the work of God the plan of God, the salvation of the Lord. His nameless brothers are forgotten, unknown, unnamed. But Jephthah's name lives. Jephthah's name lives among the roll call of the faithful, lives 
to be named again at the end of this story. The name of Jephthah unfolds the man in the story. At the center of that story, the center of Jephthah's story, at the center of Jephthah's life, flowing from his lips, flowing from the lips of Jephthah, the testimony of his mouth. Hear the testimony of Jephthah's mouth. The Lord, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord the Judge. Jephthah testifies to the centrality of the Lord in his life over and over the name that is most frequently upon the lips of Jephthah is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Jephthah's confession of the Lord's name includes Jephthah's possession of the Lord's story. Jephthah understands, Jephthah rehearses, Jephthah lives out the drama of the history of redemption. Jephthah knows the history, redemptive history of his Lord. Jephthah knows the redemptive history of the Lord, his God. He knows the story of the exodus from Egypt. God's mighty hand of deliverance, deliverance from bondage, deliverance at the Red Sea, deliverance in the wilderness, deliverance from the king of Moab, the king of Edom, the king of the Amorites. Jephthah knows the redemptive historical story. He knows the story of the Lord's mighty conquest of Sion and Balak, Transjordanian kings. And as Jephthah knows the story of the Lord his God, so he knows the story of the God of the Ammonites. Jephthah knows the story of Chemosh, the bloodthirsty God of the Ammonites. Chemosh, thirsting for the blood of little boys and little girls. Chemosh, who demands the blood of sons and daughters to be poured out on his altars, their bodies fully consumed in flames, their bloody corpses engulfed in a holocaust of fire to appease the mute idol lusting for human burnt offerings. Yes, Jephthah knows the story of the God of the nation he will defeat by the spirit of the God of Israel. He knows that story, and in his defeat of that human sacrifice nation by the hand of the Lord, he declares his disgust, his contempt, his horror of their God, and the burnt offerings of sons and daughters offered up unto that God, to Chemosh. God of human blood sacrifice. And thus Jephthah vows 
a vow unto the Lord. Unto the Lord he vows, the Lord who judges between right and wrong, the Lord who judges between sin and obedience. Jephthah vows to the judge of all righteousness that he will devote to the Lord whatever first comes to him from his house. If the Lord will bring him to his house, to his family, to his child, to his daughter, to his legitimate offspring, to his seed marked with no stigma, no reproach, no slur of bastard outcast. Jephthah vows to the Lord. In the spirit, Jephthah vows to the Lord. By the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, Jephthah vows to the Lord that what first greets him in peace from his home shall be the Lord's. It shall be devoted to the Lord. It shall be separated to the Lord. It shall be set apart to the Lord. If I come again to my house in peace, what first greets me will belong to the Lord. I will part with it. I will dedicate it. I will devote it to the service of the Lord. Jephthah, This pilgrim from a far country, this exile, come again to the promised land. Jephthah vows before the face of heaven in the Holy Spirit. Jephthah vows a heaven-oriented vow. Vows to devote to heaven what greets him in peace. Whatever it is, he will commend it to heaven Devote it wholly and entirely to the Lord God of heaven, the Lord God of Moses and Israel, the Lord God of the law of offerings and sacrifices, the Lord God of the pilgrims of the former age who says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, a thing I never commanded or spoke, nor did it ever enter my mind, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.10, Jeremiah 19.5, Jephthah knows the antithesis between the sacrificial law of the Lord his God and the sacrificial law of Chemosh, God of the Ammonites. Jephthah knows. And when he comes to his home in peace, before the face of heaven, he cannot... No, he cannot become a pagan Ammonite and kill his daughter and burn her on an altar of the very Lord God whom he has served and who has declared that such an offering would be an abomination in his sight. That would make Jephthah possess the spirit of Satan and not be a possessor of the spirit of the Lord his God. 
If the heaven-oriented nature of Jephthah's faith, of Jephthah's life, heaven possesses his vow as heaven possesses his faith, as heaven possesses his heart, and heaven moves him to devotion, not immolation, the substance of things hoped for, heavenly riches and possession, moves Jephthah to devote his daughter to heaven as his life by the spirit of the living Lord God is devoted to heaven, so he devotes the life of his only child, his one and only child, his beloved daughter, her life, is devoted to heaven as his life is devoted to heaven. You must understand what the narrator of Judges 11 is doing in this chapter. He is mirroring the life of Jephthah and the life of Jephthah's daughter in his life. That's the reason for the bookends. That's the reason for the inclusio. That's the reason for the narrative symmetry at the beginning and end of the chapter. You must read the chapter in terms of its narrative structure. The father and child are not the stigmatized paradigm of the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, the father and child are not the stigmatized paradigm of the beginning of the story. They are the very opposite. That's the reason the narrator has written the story the way he has. He is showing you the antithesis and the opposite drama of these two lives. And into the life of that father, he folds the life of that daughter. This father and child are marked with a spirit of devotion to heaven and to heaven's Lord. If Jephthah is filled with the Holy Spirit, he vows to mirror himself in his daughter and to devote her life to a life in the spirit, a celibate life in the spirit. A life in which, as an unmarried woman, a virgin, she, as Paul says, will be concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, 1 Corinthians 7.34. And the daughter of Jephthah replies, My father, you have given your word to the Lord, so do to me. As you have said, Jephthah's daughter accepts the vow of her father, mirroring, reflecting herself in him, in his Lord, in the Holy Spirit that indwells him, in the heaven-oriented focus of his life, in his devotion to heaven and heaven's Lord now. She will devote herself to heaven and to heaven's Lord. She will devote herself singularly, celibately, solely to the Lord. No children for her, no 
husband for her, no legitimate seed from her to perpetuate the line of Jephthah and family. Though she bewails her virgin status, she embraces its perpetuity, not its bloody execution. She will join the women who serve the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the God of Israel. Women who serve the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the God of Israel. In Exodus 38, verse 8, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 22, Jephthah's daughter is wholly dedicated to the service of the Lord. A perpetual virgin serving at the door of the tabernacle of the Lord. Tabernacle of the Lord. The gateway to heaven. And the most holy of holies presence of the God of her salvation. That's where she will serve near unto God. And so she knew not a man, Judges 11.39. An irrelevant remark if she was killed and burned on an altar. She knew not a man. A very relevant remark as she remained unmarried, a virgin for life who served God until her death. For if Jephthah did in fact murder his daughter, as all romantic and liberals assert, the daughters of Israel would not go about for four days in the year to recount or praise the fact Judges 11, verse 40. No, if he murdered her, you would want to forget it, not memorialize it. But if she lived a perpetual virgin, you would commemorate her self-sacrifice, even her devotion, and praise God for the life of service she rendered to heaven and to heaven's Lord. She thus becomes a testimony to the substance of the life of heaven. For there they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. Jephthah's vow projects the substantial and evidential hope of a heavenly devotion, a heavenly service at the door of a heavenly tabernacle where all pilgrims by faith will rest and bask in full and complete devotion to heaven's Lord, through heaven's Son, by heaven's Holy Spirit. And I submit to you this evening that Jephthah and his daughter possessed that kind of faith. Jephthah rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it. 
and was glad. Now in support of the approach that I've taken, though I have taken a narrative approach which is unique to all of the literature, in support of what I have taken, the position I have taken, I want you to notice that Jephthah is not only mentioned in the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11.32. He is also commended in 1 Samuel 12.11. In neither place is any reproach listed against his name. Turn with me to Judges 11 verse 31. If you're not already looking at the chapter the 31st verse is translated in many versions. As when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, whatever comes out of the doors of my house, or marginal readings, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The Hebrew word here, which is a compound verb with a double pronoun, that is, the verb is parsed as a first-person uh, first person personal pronoun, namely, I will offer. But the it is a suffix-attached pronoun, which is third-person, which could mean, in addition to it, it could also mean him. So the verse could be translated, I will offer him a burnt offering meaning that Jephthah is not vowing to make an offering of his daughter or whatever comes out of his house, but he's going to offer God a burnt offering for whatever comes out of his house, daughter or anything else. In other words, the suffix-attached pronoun to the Hebrew verb here is a possible attribution of the direct object of the verb. Namely, that Jephthah is indicating he will offer to God himself a burnt offering, not offer his daughter as a burnt offering. Now, in addition, the 27th chapter of Leviticus, particularly the first eight verses of that 27th chapter of Leviticus, describe the process of redeeming a vow redeeming a vow. And this situation here may be applied to that legal context. I have not exhausted my own study of that chapter, and so I am only in a preliminary way capable of saying that it may have relevance to this situation. In addition... The Old and New Testament alike repeat over and over again, even underscoring the fact that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God would not accept a sacrifice of a human life because he has forbidden it. He will not contradict himself, go back on his word, and then say sacrifice is better than obedience. I told you not to let your children pass through the fire. I never even thought of such a thing, let alone put your daughter through the fire. It is absolutely unthinkable. 
And that's the reason that the modern commentators are now saying that the God of Israel at one time in the history of the Jewish religion was a bloodthirsty God who demanded human sacrifice. That's the consistent logic of taking the approach that Jephthah kills his daughter and burns her up on an altar. You're going to have to say that the God of the Jews is a primitive, bloodthirsty God, just like the gods of the Mayans and the Aztecs, where they, where their priests cut the hearts out of living, nubile virgins. That is wretched stuff. Absolutely wretched stuff, which is the reason the scripture is absolutely clear. I forbid you to do that. Now, one more point. If we interpret verse 31 of Judges 11 as a rash vow, that is, Jephthah makes a vow that he should, that he uh, rashly uh, uh, promises uh, to, in exchange or dickers or negotiates with God for victory. You know from the case of David, those of you that were with us in the series on the life of David, <clears throat> the case of David's rash vow. When he threatened to kill Nabal, and Abigail stopped him, 1 Samuel 25. And he blessed her for stopping him from executing a rash vow. Why did he bless her? Because if she hadn't stopped him, God would have cursed him. If you keep a rash vow, I guarantee you, God isn't going to bless you for keeping the promise. God's going to curse you for breaking his word. Therefore, no rash vow is binding. And if Jephthah kept this rash vow, then he can't be on the roll call of Hebrews 11, nor can he be on the list in 1 Samuel 12. It's just simply impossible, unthinkable. And that applies to any rash vows or fleeces you're going to throw out before God in your own Christian life. Don't do that kind of nonsense. And if you do, if you're foolish enough to make a promise to God and then think that you have to follow through with it, after you've made a rash promise, which is contrary to his revealed will, and think you've got to do it anyway because you promised, I fear for you. I fear for you. Don't, do not mess with that stuff. Don't even go down that road. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. That's all you need. And finally... In justification for the scenario that she becomes a dedicated virgin at the tabernacle of the Lord, all I ask you to do is remember the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who prayed that if God would give her a child, she would vow to dedicate that son to the Lord and give him to Eli the priest in the tabernacle of God. Not just women serving at the tabernacle, but Samuel dedicated to God and serving in the tabernacle from a child up. The precedents here are sufficient to raise serious exegetical and theological questions about the romanticizing and sentimentalizing of the story of Jephthah and his daughter so as it looks like Agamemnon and Clytemestra at Iphigenia. For those of you that know Greek mythology, you know what Agamemnon did to his daughter, Iphigenia, before the Trojan War. 
to let the ships of Greece sail, he killed his daughter and burned her on an altar. That's paganism. But of course, you see, the liberals want to see Christianity as just a variety of paganism. Keep it in mind. When you don't read Judges 11 the way the narrator wrote it, he gives you the clues if you follow the structure. All right, the rest of the chapter, just a couple of things. Verse 33. Shut the mouths of lion. You would perhaps think, first of all, of whom? Daniel in the lion's den. But notice it's referring back to 32. So who is it referring to? David. Who in that list shut the mouth of lions? Samson. Samson. I'm not denying that David did shut the mouth of lions in the sense that he uh, killed them, but uh, here's Samson tearing a lion, uh, uh, killing a lion with his bare hands, probably by breaking its jaw. Quenched fire. Who would you think of there? Loretta, you're our expert on this uh, point. Quenched fire. Quenched fire. Who did you say for shut the mouth of the lion? Daniel. Well, who's Daniel's friends? Hmm. Hmm. You said a sermon on those. Well, a couple of months ago. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Probably referring to that. But if it is referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what's going on in verse 32? Who in verse 32 quenches fire? That one becomes a little more problematic. Verse 35. Women receive their dead by resurrection. Who's he talking about there? Two women had their children raised. Okay. Well, the, was it the Shunammite? Shunammite. Who raised hers? Uh, Elisha. Elisha. Okay. You're doing well. Elijah also. Elijah also. The widow. Widow of? Widow of Zarephath. Okay, 1 Kings 17, widow of Zarephath and Elijah. 2 Kings 4, Shunammite woman and Elisha. Verse 37, they were stoned to death. All right, now tradition here, Jewish tradition here suggests that this is Jeremiah. Where did Jeremiah die? In Egypt. Yes. Jeremiah was taken down into Egypt after the collapse or the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. He did not die in the Promised Land. He was forced down into Egypt, and tradition says he was stoned there. But there is also a case in the Old Testament, a fellow named Zechariah, who was a son of Jehoiada the priest in the days of Joash, 2 Chronicles 24-21. Zechariah, who was stoned to death. Is this the Zechariah that Jesus refers to in Matthew 23, 35? 
The problem with that is that Jesus calls him the son of Berechiah, and in Second Chronicles 24, 21, he's called the son of Jehoiada. Is there some, you know, grandfather behind there? It's the reason Jesus is referring to him by the name Berechiah. We, we don't know. It's a mysterious reference. But in Luke 11, 51, where the same reference is made, Jesus refers to this Zechariah, the, his father is not listed, or his grandfather, as the case may be. I only suggest to you that this may be a reference to that uh, person, Zechariah, being stoned. Sawn in two. Who's that? Once again, Jewish tradition. Nothing in the scriptures here. Isaiah. Possibly Isaiah was sawn in two. Died by the sword. Okay, now notice we're talking about prophets in these cases. What prophet died by the sword? This is the prophet Uriah. Yes, there's another Uriah in the Old Testament. This is the prophet Uriah who was killed by King Jehoiakim, contemporary of Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 26, 23 kills the prophet Uriah. And finally, those that wandered about in skins. Harry, Harry Camelsgar, Ben, Elijah. Elijah. John the Baptist comes dressed the same way Elijah does. Now, finally, for the verse forty, God provides something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What better has God provided? Well, the answer is in chapter twelve, verse two. Christ, the author or pioneer and perfecter of our faith. <clears throat> Why is he talking about them being perfected, uh, not apart from us? He's referring to what we would call the eschatological community or communion of the saints. Both they in the Old Testament, that is, these heroes that we've looked at, these heroes and heroines that we've looked at, and us bring the history of redemption to its completion or perfection in the sense that the history of redemption reaches its goal. Its goal is to bring Christ to the soul. The purpose of the manifestation of the Son of God in the Old Testament, that is, this Christological aspect of the life of these Old Testament believers, they possess him even by grace as they live by faith, and we possess him now by faith. Both of us walk as pilgrims by faith, possessing Christ, and together, you see, putting it all together in the fullness of time with the purpose of the history of redemption reaching its climax and the incarnation of the Son of God, we are completed together in the communion of Old and New Testament saints, the communion of Old and New Testament pilgrims, the communion of Old and New Testament Hebrews. That's the sense in which he means this. He does not mean that somehow they are withheld from the fruition of their faith, namely the glory of heaven at their death uh, as they are saved by grace. He doesn't mean that they have to wait for us. He's talking about how this has all come to its climactic accomplishment as Christ himself draws us into the very same drama that he drew them, namely the possession of those eschatological blessings 
only we possess it in a richer way because we've seen the fullness which they only hoped for and saw through a glass darkly. Any questions or comments? Nobody wants to argue for the burning up of Jephthah's daughter. Good, I'm glad I persuaded you. <laughs> Scott, in addition to what you said about perfected, did you see a re- reflection on Hebrews 10 with that language of perfected? Yes, uh, namely uh, reaching its accomplished purpose or its realized purpose. Yeah, the the word here is the same that he uses in the epistle. And so it carries that same flavor. And in this instance, a number of commentators will say, well, you see, there's a a distinction, kind of almost like a dispensational distinction between these Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. No, that's not what he's saying. It's, It's reading into that word perfection something that is not implied by the way he uses and even the, the, uh, the nuance of the Greek word, but particularly how he uses it by defining it in his context. It's redemptive historical perfection and completion.